We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happened. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The boulevard of broken dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1998's Babe Pig in the City. Directed by George Miller and written by Miller, Judy Morris, and Mark Lamprell. Here's a clip. This is the farm. Peaceful. Calm. Civilized. But now, the only chance to save the farm is for one little pig. He can't leave. You're my lucky pig. <laughs> to go to the city. You can't leave. Huh? You can't leave. Anybody home? Uh, anybody else? Somebody. Let me in. Let me in. He's entered a world of outcasts and misfits. Who are these losers? Well, hey, slow down. If you're not a cat, stay at chat. I'm hungry. Flatley, come back. We don't know where it's been. Separated from his owner. I seem to have lost my human. Totally on his own. You're just a little pig in the big city. What can you possibly do? What can anyone do? Destiny has changed his mission. <laughs> and his courage is about to change everyone's lives. Whatever the pig says, goes. All right, that was a clip from George Miller's Babe Pig in the City. That's right, I said George Miller, the director of Mad Max, made a movie called Babe Pig in the City, and it's great. My name is Patrick, and joining me to talk about this amazing movie, I hope he thinks it's amazing, I don't know if he's seen this, likes it, whatever, is uh, Ricky B. What's up, Patrick? I already have two questions. I I'm here to answer everything, all your Babe Pig in the City questions. When I watched a film, I watched it on Crave here in Canada. It said it was directed by Reggie Miller. Who's oh. that? The only Reggie Miller I know is a basketball player. R Reggie Miller, I, th I, th I, I, are they referring to the comedian? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I believe he shot the film in the last eight seconds. Um, that voice you've just heard, who I, I hope is also eager to talk about Babe, is Simon Howell. Yo, what's up? Wait, you haven't answered my question. <laughs> I assume what, it's just a fuck question? up on Crave's part. I mean, I know it's George Miller, the director. That's why I was stoked to actually watch this movie. But no, like, Simon, you you live in Canada. How did you watch a movie, and who was credited as the, the director? Um, it George Miller was credited as the director when I watched it. That's all I can tell you. What the hell, man? Did I watch the right movie? 
I don't know. Was there a lot of dog endangerment in it? No, there was. Yeah. Yeah. Then you watched the right movie. Okay. My second question is before we dive into the review, who does the voice of Babe? That's uh, E.G. Daly, um, who was uh, a fellow Rugrats cast member from the. She's uh, uh, from Pee Wee's Playhouse, right? That I, I, I don't know. She was also like a singer in the eighties. Uh, came up, you know, ha- had a lot of songs on movie soundtracks. I guess. Um, oh man, yeah, she's from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. She might, yeah, she appeared a, a few times in, in a few different things. Yeah, she played Dottie. Oh. And she was replacing Christine Cavanaugh, who voiced the original Babe. Yeah, right. That's why I was confused because I I had seen the original film way back. Thought it was a really good kids movie, really good, good, really good movie. Period. And this is actually the first time I've watched the the sequel, and so I was just com- completely confused by the credit sequence, which again I watched on Crave and doesn't really make any sense. Okay, so you had never seen this movie before. All right, th- to me, so the, I, this movie goes back. I, I saw this before I saw the original Babe, um, which makes it tough to go back and watch the original Babe once you've seen this masterpiece. But uh, I uh, I fell in love with this movie because I don't think... This is one of those few movies, and I picked this movie this week because, uh, first of all, it was just a... We, we had had internal discussions, and we thought it would be a good good selection to make after last week's Universal Soldier. Um, <laughs> even though there are some intense similarities. Yeah, we, we, went in a, we went and found the only movie more dark and intense than Universal Soldier Day of <laughs> yeah. Reckoning, and it's Babe 2, Pig in the City. It really is. So this is a, one of those movies that gets me every time, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, but uh, this movie pr- provokes so many uh, emotions in me <laughs> when I watch it. This is, I, I consider this to be like just an absolute stone cold, one of my favorite movies ever made. I mean, I, there's no way that I couldn't include this on, on a list of my favorite movies of all time, just because it does get to me um, on, an, on an artistic level, and that sounds so douchebaggery but i i feel like this movie is a a work of art for for me that's how it connects with me it's not just a little kids movie which the first babe like rick like you said is an is a nice little kids movie it's a nice movie it's it's a it's a decent entertaining movie but it's nothing that really sticks with me this movie sticks with me (laughs) and i think it'll stick with adults more than kids although it might give kids nightmares patrick can i ask you a quick question did this movie land originally on your radar because of either gene siskel or roger ebert it did indeed yes uh and i was almost put off by other critics so i was living in san francisco at the time and the san francisco critic out there did a absolutely horrible job reviewing this movie in retrospect but when I read it at the time, he, he had said it was crap. Don't bother watching this thing. Uh, he, he he had said, I think his name was Peter Stack. He had said that the movie played um, like animals in peril for laughs, for slapstick. Now, of course, anybody who's seen this movie knows that none of those sequences are played for laughs at all. <laughs> they're They're dead serious. But uh, yeah, I, I saw it because of uh, the Siskel and Ebert, um, the the insistence uh, uh, um, from them that this was such a great movie. And of course, you know, I knew George Miller at the time, and I liked the Mad Max movies quite a bit. Um, so that was that certainly helped. I was not into kids movies, so I wasn't going to go see. You know, I still haven't seen Happy Feet. George Miller did that one. But uh, no, it was it was the Siskel and Ebert thing that did it for me. I do want to just say that I do think that the original Babe is a good movie. 
like like mm-hmm. like just to just like just to repeat it's a really good kids family adventure yes but it is when i started watching this movie i was like why did patrick pick this movie like this is the sorted cinema podcast because like the first like 20 minutes it kind of feels like it's going to be another family friendly kid adventure then we yes. get to the big city and then i'm looking around and i'm looking at the design of the city and how futuristic it looks and it just takes like different elements and different architecture and different buildings from our world and combines into this like one fictional weird city. And I'm like thinking, okay, this is George Miller. And then we get to the monkeys and I'm like, Hmm, is this going to turn into like planet of the apes or something? And then it starts to make sense. It starts to make sense why you chose the movie, because I do feel like it's a blend of different genres. At times it's a bit of slapstick. It's a dark comedy. It's an adventure action film. But then, dude, when we get to the foot chase, like when I think of foot chases in movies, the first movie that comes to mind is Point Break. That foot chase is incredible, right? But the foot chase in this movie is amazing it's mind-blowing to me that's when the movie pivoted from being good to great and from Mm -hmm. then on i was just like damn i'm so glad i watched this movie not only was it so emotional to watch the pit pull there he is hanging upside down he's about to drown and everyone's just standing around watching him nobody tries to even help the poor dog and then babe the big hero jumps into the river swims to go to save him it was so emotional like, 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 legit. Like, I know these are animals, and this is like, quote unquote, a kids movie. But damn, like that scene just won me over, and <laughs> that's when I knew I liked the movie. Um, I really like this movie. I haven't seen the original Babe in a long time. Uh, interesting bit of trivia that I learned um, while I was looking into this. So the first Babe was directed by a fellow named uh, Chris Noonan. However, Roger Miller produced and uh, I, th- I think had a hand in writing the first one. George, and- George Miller. Sorry, George Miller. Sorry. Uh, George Miller was heavily involved in the first one. And there was even a dispute about uh, Noonan came out and said, like, I don't want to make an enemy out of George Miller, but I kind of feel like he's given people the impression that I didn't do anything on this movie. And to which George Miller said, essentially, like, like, Noonan was handed that movie on a silver platter. Um, So Miller was at least very involved in the vision of the original. But uh, this is clearly a very different beast, uh, quite literally. And um, to to my mind, the two best reasons to watch this movie, um, because this is a movie whose audience is kind of tricky to pin down, obviously. Uh, It's definitely too scary for little kids. Um, I think the two best reasons to watch are like, uh, first of all, it's a wonderful showcase of George Miller's mastery of effects. Uh, the effects in this movie and just the way they're blended with, you know, real animals and presumably lots of other trickery, which I'm sure we can get into, uh, is just totally seamless. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that to me is actually the number one reason to watch this. Number two, I think that the um, and I, it, t- it takes a while to figure out what this movie is really about, um, I think. And uh, around the time of the sequence that you described, uh, Ricky, I think uh, the film is really about empathy and how um, urban life in particular has a way of grinding away at your ability to empathize with others. And it takes this literal, uh, you know, not quite literal, but this, you know, fish out of water scenario uh, with this uh, creature of perfect empathy, which is what Babe is, um, to, so- to sort of, you know, shift the dynamics and and provide some hope in this world of uh, of both 
you know, good, good creatures who are beaten down as well as just the more malevolent, um, mainly humans, uh, who are, I mean, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the term NIMBY, but, uh, there are some real NIMBY assholes in this movie. I don't know that term. <laughs> a NIMBY means not in my backyard. Ah. Um, just, you know, people who, especially city dwellers who, you know, perhaps like the idea of um, homeless shelters or a social safety net in general. But when it's next to them, they're like, mm, no, this is driving down property values. This is rabble. I don't want to deal with this. Um, and that's that's then and that's shown very explicitly happening in this movie. Oh, yeah, no question about it. I, I do think that the movie uh, takes interesting perspective. It has a lot of empathy even towards its so-called its quote unquote villains. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so take Uncle Fugly, for instance. Uh, you are he is definitely shown to be a creep. Uh, when you first see him, but played by Mickey are, Rooney, by the way, I oh, fantastic, just fantastic creep. But then you are also you sympathize with him at certain points during the movie. Uh, the you know the animals that all like Rick mentioned during that foot chase, uh, and there's an attack, and the animals all turn their back on a fellow animal that is drowning. Not great, right? Not not great stuff. But they are all seen to to have you know they're they're fully fleshed out characters. They have their own problems. They've had, they've had their own lives that have led to these moments of of uncaring and even the upper crust, just ridiculous elite at the very end of the movie. It's and this movie, by the way, like watch the background because the costumer must have had a field day with this. Mm -hmm. thing. Oh yeah, production design, costuming, just uh completely nuts in this movie off the charts but even those people are given sort of a moment of redemption when the the little um chimpanzees you know the chimpanzee falls from the 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 chandelier and is saved and they sort of all see like oh these you know made these animals have feelings and oh we're all you know we're all part of this world or whatever stuff like that uh, everybody's given their little little moments. There there are very few true villains. There are some, and those neighbors you mentioned across the street, they just they only get a comeuppance. They get no sympathy whatsoever. But uh, and you know, I I would suppose that the animal control also is seen as, as pretty much true villains. I don't think that they're ever given any moments. But for but for the most part, most characters, even the ones that are sort of bad, are given some gray areas. I, Rick, Rick hadn't seen this. Uh, so Rick, as far as the tone changes that Simon talked about, like that, that definitely happens. And I understand how when you're first watching this movie, it eases you in. It gives you little clues. I think the opening scene with uh, with Farmer Hoggett, James Cromwell, jamming his thumb in the while well, he's trying to fix the well and having that thing crash on his head. I think it gives you hints. This is not going to be the happy-go-lucky. Oh, you mean uh, almost killing the kindly patriarch from the original movie is a subtle hint? Because to yeah. my mind, that's like the movie is telling you right away, this is a different beast. Yeah, definitely. And even when you look at the makeup on his hand when he reaches over to Pet Babe when he's in his bed, it's like there's fucking there's, gnarly. Yeah, he he screwed up his hand, and they don't they don't mince. <laughs> Like little details there. Um, and just shots like when he's in the cargo bay of the airplane. It's almost like a horror movie shot. This is kind of Babe's descent into hell. Uh, the, this is the worst the worst place that he could imagine being. It is the true test of Babe's being a nice little pig. I mean, other than a slaughterhouse, clearly. Yeah, yeah exactly. This, Maybe this, that would have been like... Babe, Babe 3, The Jungle. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that the, the first clue as to this film's going to be different than the original, it's going to be darker, is right at the beginning, I think it's like the very first scene, when we see the airplane fly above and 
the words ham are spelled out. Mm, and then eventually yeah. it turns into champ. From what I remember, the first movie, it doesn't address the fact that, or maybe it does, but it actually does, like the fact that these are farm animals and they can be used as food and might be used as food for oh, us yeah. humans. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. Yeah, it does, right? Because I remember in the first movie, there the duck, who, by the way, is maybe the the MVP of Ferdinand. In the first movie, he wants to be a rooster. That's what I remember. And then she buys an alarm clock because she's sick of the crazy duck who's trying to act like a rooster. But yeah, like in this movie, it, it it's way darker because – and you said you wouldn't let kids watch it or it's, it's maybe a little too much for young kids. And it depends on what you mean by young kids, like seven and younger, eight and younger, maybe – but I think, like, if you're in elementary school, like, 9, 10, 11, 12 years yeah. old, I think you can watch this movie. And a lot of times, like, the thing about the first movie is the the subtext or stuff that's a little bit dark, I don't think kids would catch on. But in this film, they will understand. They're going to understand that this dog is about to die. He's about to drown. They're going to understand that these evil men just stormed the hotel and just kidnapped all of these animals and put them in the animal shelter and God knows what's going to happen to them. And they're separating them. And you know what I mean? That's like dark and twisted and mm-hmm. depressing and sad. And so I think if you're a kid and you're watching this movie, you're, you're most likely going to have nightmares and you're, you might even cry. But that's good. Honestly, kids should yeah. cry and have nightmares. I mean, well, I'm being I, serious. I, I'm serious. And I, th- I think kids need to see a movie like this because this, this is how, how you can shape somebody later on to have empathy in their life. Like to see the results of people not having it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Like, like you said, Simon, this is a movie about, you nailed it exactly. This is a movie about how the city can wear you down. How it can strip away, you know, humanity and your your ability to care about others. And basically, I, they, they mention it many times in the movie. It's a dog-eat-dog world. There's not enough dog to go around. Uh, everybody cares about themselves except for Babe. And, and so they've got to bring that back. And, like, I'm not going to say this is the only way to watch this movie or, like, um, that George Miller had an axe to grind or anything. But... I think there is a reason or there's a set of reasons of, uh, you know, how these uh, this motley crew of animals is characterized and designed. You know, I think there's a reason that they're, um, you know, one of them is in a wheelchair and others are, you know, clearly in very desperate straits. They have to, you know, do petty crime to survive. They're coming from all over the place and they're, they're totally analogous, I think, if you're looking for it to, you know, the 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 hidden underclass or the. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Sort of the, uh, the, 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 the lumpen population of a, of a major urban center. I don't think the movie beats you over the head with it, but I think that George Miller isn't just going to go to all this trouble of making this incredibly elaborate movie unless he had something on his mind. And I think that that's there for you to find. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think also the fact that they try to divide themselves, like even the animals themselves, like within the, within the hotel, like at one point we have the big, huge, um, a brawl is about to break out on one side, you got the cats and, on the right side, you got the dogs and they start arguing and then you got poor little babe just trying to like get everyone to just get along. It's like it sounds corny. Like the, the movie is just about why can't we just all get along at the end of the day? Like like you said, like show empathy towards like people who are different than you and everyone has problems. And I mean, I do like how I think Patrick mentioned that just like they they do make us sympathize for some of the human characters who are supposed to be, quote unquote, villains. Not all, but some. But they also show the flaws within the animals, especially the chimpanzees and the orangutan. Oh, and they definitely, Thelonious has an arc, like a great yeah. arc. 
And it, it shows, it, it makes him very complex. It would have been very easy for him just to be the, the arrogant, like, you're just a pig kind of guy. But he also has that goldfish. And I think that lends an incredible amount of depth to his character. It makes you see him in a completely different light. That he also enjoys having, not power, but it is kind of a power over something. It's not that he enjoys withholding something from that goldfish, withholding food or anything like that. But he likes to be magnanimous, the magnanimous mm-hmm. one. And with Babe around, he doesn't get to be seen as that anymore. He doesn't have that sort of social yeah. power anymore. Well, and I think um, something the movie does really, really well, and this is a function of smart writing, is um, when you first meet the, the the chimps, they kind of seem like a totally malevolent force because they're talking about, you know, uh, there's literally a line about like, um, will, will, will babe serve as a uh, serve for the feast or whatever the exact line is. His and you think, will yeah, for nourishment, nourishment. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the, the chimps are seen as sort of conniving and it's like, oh, wow, they're like literally already talking about eating babe. But no, what they're actually talking about is setting him up as part of, as part of the, um, the hospital sort of clown act as the, uh, as you know, as the, as the meal in the act, mm-hmm. um, and the movie is, especially in that first half, it's con- I think uh, Miller and Co. do a great job of throwing you into Babe's perspective, trying to fi- trying to figure out like, you know, who are these people? What are the or how are these creatures? What are they going to do? You know, what's what's going on here? Um, and uh, just throwing you into the the new and unfamiliar, um, you know, trying to figure out what their what their motivations are. And I think only it's only slowly over time. That you slowly get to understand each one of these chimps and the orangutan as uh, as their own characters. By the way, I have to mention now. Shout out to uh, I was try- it took me a- so long to figure out who that voice is. I recognize that voice, Stephen Wright, who voices oh, yeah. Bob. Yeah. Um, I recognized him from like Louis and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, such inspired casting for that particular chimp. I that was a great great performance. Which one is Bob? He's the 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 husband of the um he's the father of the of the baby chimps yeah uh he's got he's kind of got like a sardonic american voice yeah. okay well the first thing that stood out was how freaking amazing this movie looks it is mm-hmm. beautiful i mean not just the farm because like I, i'm assuming it's easier to shoot something on a farm and have like beautiful images with the sun and it's all open and it's just easier for you to like work your lighting but even within the city, and there's a, clearly a huge contrast between what we get in the city and what we get on the farm. But damn, this movie looks good. And so I had to look up who the DOP is. And sure enough, it's the same director of photography who worked on all three original Lord of the Rings movies. There you go. Actually, he worked on all of them, including The Hobbit. But we're not going to talk about The Hobbit. The point is he worked <laughs> on the original three um Lord of the Rings movies, which I guess kind of makes sense because this movie was filmed in Australia. And I guess he's from New Zealand. Yeah, the close um, enough, right? I also uh, speaking of things that this looks like, um, I need to know if Brian Fuller has seen this movie because I don't know if either of you have ever seen the TV show Pushing Daisies, but I swear it rips off its entire aesthetic, including specific character designs from this movie. It does. <laughs> it really does. It, it, it you you can. I mean, you could actually say that that TV show takes place within the same universe as this. A hundred percent. Hundred percent. Even the narration is kind of similar. 
there's something about that lighting that makes it seem that makes everybody pop out like a storybook sort it, of thing. It, exactly, that perfect, perfect way to, to to describe it. It looks like a storybook, but it's so incredibly bright. Like I like I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out, and I guess I could do some research, but I was trying to do some research and I couldn't find anything. Like, did they somehow enhance the look of the film, the lighting, how bright it is, the colors in post production? I'm I'm assuming yes, maybe they did some sort of like color correction, but I don't know. It just looks amazing. And it's shot on film. Yeah, it's not just the colors; it's the backlights. These are heavy backlights, so you can see kind of a little bit of a, a, a glow around the outline of people. It's a white outline, uh, which is subtle most of the time in movies uh, if people do use backlights, but not in this one. And they, they like the fur of the animals really makes it shine too. And I, I wonder if that was because there are certain effects that they had to do where they had to CG in animals so they would take real footage of of a single animal running and then they would just mix it in to make all the animals look like they were say running in a straight line or all running together they're not running together they could never get animals they couldn't coordinate animals to do Mm -hmm. something like that but they could coordinate one to go and then they have to sort of green screen them all in and i wonder if the lighting helps with that so they light everybody with this intense backlight that makes them absolutely pop off the screen separates them from the background that's what backlights you know is supposed to help you do and that way it sort of hides the little separation that a green screen would normally provide because it's everything looks so seamless in this it's hard for me to tell when they're doing a lot of shots i just have to sort of my brain just has to say okay there's about 50 animals running around there's no way they had all those animals hitting their marks at the same time that must be green screen but it doesn't look like it is because it's so consistent with the non-green screen stuff. You know what? I, I have to start bookmarking what I read because usually I'm reading stuff when I'm in bed, right, on my phone. But I was reading an interview and they said that 90% of the film is not CGI. Like they actually had these animals doing whatever it is that they do. And then they went to CGI to do sort of things like uh, have the animals lips move. The mouth. Yeah, sorry. I meant green screen. I, I guess I misspoke there. Not CGI. I don't know. Like, I would be like, I wish I, I, I guess none of us have the DVD. I would be interested to know if there's like a making I of. Um, I, I do. And there isn't. I, I've uh, I, there aren't any making ofs of this movie. It's like notorious for having very little information about it. <laughs> I, probably because it was a bomb at the time. But, by the way, Simon, yes. you are wrong. You told me a few days ago that Roger Ebert chose us as his best. I was wrong. Year. It was, it was, it was Siskel. Siskel, but they both had it in their top 10. So I wasn't that wrong. Right. I'm but not Siskel owned. put a number one. <laughs> and anytime Simon's wrong, I got to point it out. I have to point out when Simon's you know, it's wrong. true. It only happens once a year. Uh, also clearly the, the, okay, wait a minute. I'm always confused about the apes, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, the orangutan. What's his name again? Thelonious. Okay. So he's named after the famous jazz pianist. Thelonious monk. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I didn't notice a lot of CGI. I sort of also assumed that a lot of the background stuff, like the skyline or whatever, was like, I kind of assumed there was as much model work uh, or practical stuff as CGI. Oh, yeah. It's um, a big studio that they shot this in. That, that Australia uh, 20th Century Fox studio is huge. Yeah, it's all like, I can't imagine, like, was any of this in the city shot on any kind of location? I don't think so. Uh, I the only one that strikes me as maybe being on location somewhere, but there's no way because it's just so everything's so weird. Is the the Venice Beach ish area where uh, you know Mrs. Hoggett goes down and runs into the cops? You know she's calling out pig, 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 and the cops see her. So the entire film was shot in Australia, and it was all around the same uh, like like I think what do you call it, like a sound studio? 
yeah. town stage. Yeah, I get. I'm guessing that all of the 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 scenes within the hotel in the city were all shot in the studio, and the rest was shot in like actual farmland. That would that would make sense to me. Yeah, they had the same location for the house. They did have to rebuild the house because they tore it down after the first big movie. They did not expect that there would ever be a sequel. Um, but they they shot it in the same place. They had all the plans and everything like that. Uh, and obviously, there's a couple of just establishing shots, buildings towards the end. You know, the the hospital that they go into. Um, but, but that I'll, is I'll a real duck flying next to a real plane talking at us. That's all real. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. I love the fur, the furry puppet is fantastic. Yeah, the mixture of puppets, real animals, and CG stuff is just absolutely fantastic. You get very little CG, like an entire CG body in this. Most of the CG is just simply the the talking, uh, which is done fantastic. This is a 1998 movie, and that talking holds up brilliantly. Like I buy it 100. <laughs> percent So I don't know what he told him, but apparently. Um... Miller working, you know, directing with this stuff for the first time was like quite vexed by the whole talking animals thing, like wasn't quite sure how to do it in the best way possible. And apparently in his confusion, he reached out to Stanley Kubrick. Now, I don't know what Kubrick told him to do, but uh, Kubrick was you know, obviously a guy who's up on film technology and just like generally pretty well right on this stuff. And I don't know whether whatever Kubrick told him helped, but I can tell you that uh, it looks fantastic the talking that the the effects are like i said it's some i think it's some of the best uh in terms of trying to uh make something impossible seem uh totally real or at least real enough to to buy into in a way that doesn't pull you it's totally immersive um i think miller is a master of that kind of stuff and he shows that here this is a movie made over 20 years ago and i don't see how they could do it better today I, I just don't see how it would be possible. Um, there, there just are very, very, very few shots in this movie that look utterly fake and that that take you know might take you out for a half second. It's extremely rare. I I also just love that there's this huge cast of animals in the movie, and like none of them are played by movie stars. Really, like I guess Hugo Weaving would be the closest. He's there for a cameo because he's in the first one. Yeah, and uh, and I guess. People know who Adam Goldberg is, who plays uh, Fleelick. But other than that, it's like pretty much like character actors and randos. Yeah, but Hugo Weaving wasn't necessarily big at the time because this is still before Lord of the Rings. So he was maybe famous for Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which has like a cult following. But that's about it. Yeah, he's famous and now. But The Matrix would have come out. Uh, well, was that not, no, Matrix is 99. 99. So yeah, that hadn't happened yeah. yet. So yeah, basically all like, yeah, the most famous person here is literally Adam Goldberg. <laughs> So I want to, one thing I want to impart before we go to break is it's it's so easy to get into get the idea if you've never seen this movie before that it is just a cutesy little kids movie and I want to uh, I want to talk about the sequence that we 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 brought up the the foot chase right but that isn't the end of it I think there the middle section of this movie puts you through the ringer it is a nonstop barrage of intensity that I want to impart to people that's why. Uh, when people talk about this being maybe too scary for kids, it's not just that one scene where, you know, babe almost dies, the, the pit bull almost dies. But then right after that, you have the scary scene of animal control breaking in. Yes. All of the stuff that happens with that. And then you have the, the chase on the car with Fleelick. Oh my God. That sequence. Is, it's putting you through the ringer in, in sequence after sequence after sequence three in a row that is just brutal on, on your emotions. <laughs> well, and the last thing I'm going to say before we go to break is like, it's all through that sequence. I feel like 
George Miller is fucking with you about like how far this movie is willing to go. And I think the ultimate example of that is in the Fleelick sequence where Fleelick literally fucking dies for like a minute and goes to the Elysian fields for dogs or whatever. And I'm just like, damn, they went there. But then, of course, you know, Babe revives them or whatever. But like the whole movie is like this where it's just constantly like, how far how far do you think we're going to go with this? And uh, by the halfway point, I was like, I don't know. (laughs) You can rewrite the script and you can have a body count of about maybe 40 like first of all what's his face um babe's owner farmer farmer hoggett okay starting with farmer arthur hoggett he could have died right away at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. um any one of the dogs or cats could have died during the raid with the animal control there's the pit bull there's the goldfish there's the dog on the wheelchair what's his name again Fleelick. okay there's um mickey rooney's character Actually, he does die, but he dies off screen. I mean, like, and it's it, this is like again, really, 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 really dark, like really mature, dark, twisted. This could easily be turned into like a horror film. If you if you're looking for a script for a horror film, look at Babe Pig in the City and just ch- change the pig to like a little kid. You got yourself an Academy Award winning <laughs> horror film right there. Bam. I mean, you could have had a big scene in the you know in the hospital when he's when when Uncle Fugly is performing for all those cancer patient kids. Uh, also, that, that... isn't there a sequence where freaking uh, like 20, 30 people start shooting at Fer- Ferdinand? Yes. yes. It's like it's like all of a sudden it's like boys in a hood. It's like a it's like. No, it, it's warfare, it's more man. like a, it's more like a redneck gun club than boys in the hood. Except look at the, the costumes of the people, though. That again, this movie is so it's so bizarre. They're not rednecks shooting. There's like a couple of redneck guys in there, but then there's dudes in suits. There's like these old ladies with shotguns that look like they're dressed for English tea. Um, there's all sorts of people that are just blasting away at Ferdinand. It's such a, an oleo of... Uh, people do love guns. They do be loving guns. <laughs> but this entire movie is so anachronistic. Everything's just... Nothing about this world feels like the real world, which which is very helpful, by the way. Yes. Because this movie does really put you through some stuff. But, Patrick, that scene makes me feel so bad thinking about the number of times I played Duck Hunt as a kid. Because it <laughs> actually looks like the original Nintendo He really, game. yeah, like, it's true. He lands right. on the field, it looks nice and peaceful, then you have the target that pops up, and next thing you know, there's like 20, 30 people shooting the poor duck. It's the biggest laugh in the movie. I, I mean, that's the one that'll generally catch people off guard and make them laugh, because it's set up so serenely. You have that nice little moment with the pelican right before yeah. that. Well, and the, and the Ferdinand scenes are just, are so Looney Tunes-ish compared to the uh, compared to the surrounding that they they do offer like a nice little breather from the oppressive darkness of the city until of course he arrives and then it's just darkness all the time. Yeah, that's dialogue. Like I like it when he's trying to negotiate with them when they try to free the animals and he's like, okay, I got a good idea. How about everyone who can run fast come with me and everyone who can run slow stay here and sacrifice yourself. Like, a, and it's like kind of like a good plan because the odds are I knew you'd say that of us would survive. Well, it's the you know I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you plan. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good plan, but it's one. That- it's gonna work it's a good plan for him <laughs> all right we should wrap up this first half uh when we come back we will do our five questions but here's another clip from babe pig in the city so it was one morning he set out to repair the water pump and babe somehow got it into his head that he could help but fate turns on a moment dear ones 
and the pig was about to learn the meaning of those two cruel words of regret, if only. If only he hadn't been so careless. If only the weight of the pig and the pump did not exceed the weight of the farmer. If only the farmer did not connect with the platform on the way up, or jam his fingers at the top. If only the pump hadn't fallen off at the bottom. And if only the poor farmer had the presence of mind to hold on to the rope. That was another clip from George Miller's Babe Pig in the City. We have reached the point in our podcast where we ask our five questions. This one's, I, I have a feeling we're going to, we, we know at least we're going to get one scene is going to be mentioned for sure in this, but uh, we're going to start off with Simon. Simon, what's your favorite scene from Babe Pig in the City? Oh, uh, I don't know why I've always act surprised. The questions are always the same. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about this before. Um, what is my favorite scene? Ah, oh, fuck it. I'll take the foot chase. Honestly, I know we just talked about it, but uh, that was, I think that's definitely like, it's such an important pivot point for the movie. And it normally I get annoyed when a chase scene goes on a bit long, uh, which this one, I mean, it's, it's a very elaborate chase sequence. Um, but this one I, I, I didn't feel annoyed by. And I also, I wanted to specifically highlight the um the use of music in that sequence is so odd because it's got this that sort of tranquil music going the whole time through this sequence of immense danger um it's a it, it adds uh something really like almost haunting to the atmosphere yeah we should mention that the couple that uh that tends to, that wants to like turn in the animals and all that kind of stuff that ends up calling animal control on them they're they're fans of the opera and so they're listening to an opera while this yes is that's happening. right except except the opera music is mixed in with the actual movie score yes. which just makes the music so much better in this scene but i mean look i'm gonna choose the foot chase too i like the way it just starts like how they tricked babe into going into the, like this i guess it's like um it's I don't know what under the floorboards of like some patio or something, and then you get to you meet the the, the Doberman, who by the way never re, uh, shows up again later in the movie. But there's a Doberman, and then there's the Pitbull. Then we get the amazing chase. But then what's so great about the chase, apart from the fact that it looks like they actually had the animals chasing the animals, right? Like there's no CGI here. Mm-hmm. You have it's not just a foot chase involving Babe the pig and say the Pitbull. It's Babe the pig running away from the Doberman in the pit bull. And at the same time, George Miller is establishing where all of the other animals are because we are not getting introduced into like to like one character. Like, for example, we get introduced to neighbors, but we get introduced to like 30 characters in this sequence because the cats come out, the dogs come out, you get the pink poodle, you get the little baby cat that's always hungry. And like he has to find a way to. For us to understand what is going on, like where are these pigs running, like ge- geographically, like how far is this group of dogs from this group of cats? And you got the orangutan staring from the top of the house. And then you get, uh, I think I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, Patrick, you get the flashback of Babe. Like he has a flashback of his life because he thinks he's about to die. And then it goes into slow motion. And he, and like, I mean, this is like 
a masterpiece of editing. It's a masterpiece of cinematography. It's it's a masterclass on how to show how to actually work with animals on set. The, the effects are incredible. The the music is unbelievable. It's so incredibly intense and suspenseful. And I was at the edge of my seat watching this scene. Like to me, this is one of the great all time movie scenes ever. Like that is how amazing I think the scene is. I was at the edge of my seat. I was gripping onto my armchair. I was so, so stressed out. And it was an emotional scene. Like the ending, like I can see people crying watching the scene. So it's not just an action scene. But it's emotional. And then you get introduced to all these little like stray dogs and cats. Like, damn, this this scene is incredible. The the the, the only the last element of the scene that I want to mention is uh the most important line reading of the entire movie, which is after we get a bit of narration wherein it is made explicit that Babe truly thinks he's going to be, and I quote, annihilated. Um annihilated, not just killed, annihilated. <laughs> yes. Um E.G. Daly just look looks up at, at this uh, at this pouncing dog and just says why it's just <laughs> i just got to go through a sequence of shots okay so you got a beautiful bird's eye view of babe running then you got the close-up in slow motion of babe and the pit bull then you get mm. these quick cuts like the flashback sequence so it's quick cuts of what happened prior in the movie then you get babe turn around again slow motion then they show the the the, the close-up of you know the um his leash getting stuck then you have this incredible shot where it's underwater yes, looking I was up just looking at this at the pit bull and it's all not blurry. I don't know what the word is, but it's like an underwater shot, right? Then you get introduced to all these dogs and cats. You get another beautiful bird's eye view. I mean, the, the shot compositions are just absolutely incredible. If you haven't seen this movie, you have no intention of watching this movie. And for some reason, you're listening to the podcast. Just go on YouTube and look at this one specific scene. Yeah, just look up Babe 2 Chase or whatever. It is fucking nuts. It, is. Uh, it helps if it's in context, but it, no matter what, from a film, if you're interested in filmmaking, this is a great scene to take yeah. a look at. I do want to call the editors, uh, Jay Friedkin and Margaret Sixel, and Margaret Sixel actually edited uh, Fury Road as well. Um, just fantastic editing throughout this entire movie. It's something that I notice every time that I love the way this movie cuts. You know who else deserves cr- I mean, I know we're going to get to MVP later, but we- I can't get through this podcast without just acknowledging that uh this movie was must have been like fucking world war ii for animal wranglers and like trainers in general like (laughs) fucking hell (laughs) so apparently they locked the set down because you just you had to live in this environment they said it just was you know it stunk awful but you were basically nobody in nobody out we we just have to get through this whole war together with all these animals getting them to hit their marks. And they they did talk a little bit about it. The animal wranglers were the ones that were mo- willing to talk the most. You know, George Miller hasn't really spoken much about this movie, um, but uh, they were talking about how you know the pigs would want to hit their marks, but sometimes the chimpanzees would be on their marks, so the pig would start pushing them away, like, "Hey, that's my mark." <laughs> um, they, but all the animals really did sort of uh, they, they they talked about how they had to sort of introduce them to each other early on before the shooting started so that they would be used to each other and uh, that kind of stuff this is uh, I can't imagine having to direct this but these animals hit their marks better than most humans do that's all I can say it's so true and just quickly I need to also give credit to whoever did the sound design because at the very end of that foot chase the music stops pretty silent everyone turns around and goes home and then you hear the splash in the water and then the music slowly starts to come back but it's just like oh my god i i 
this scene is amazing guys it's amazing like okay and also like i like how when they they do turn around to walk away and go back home like to them it's like it's i forget what what the actual line the dialogue delivered is but it's just like another day in the city like as if they see this happen over and over which is so depressing so sad Oh, and, and all, I mean, like, literally, you have one of the dogs saying, like, my owner threw me in a bag in the river. Like, fucking hell. <laughs> it's brutal, man. I mean, I get it. It's a kid's movie. Maybe you don't want to watch a kid, you know, they bring up suicide. That's what the Doberman says to him. You know, either you've lost your grasp on reality unless you're suicidal, of course, well, or something like that. <laughs> if I had to explain the tone of this movie to someone who hadn't seen it, I think a good way to explain it is, you remember those, like, Don Bluth movies from the early 90s, late 80s? Where, like, you know, there was a lot of animal endangerment, but it was, like, animated, so it wasn't too scary. This is very much, like, the exact same level of animal endangerment and, like, pathos, but all done live action somehow. Yeah, yeah. An an incredible job. I want to pick another scene. I'm going to go with a a different scene, even though that is my favorite scene. I think that is the scene that gets blazed into most people's minds when they think about this movie. But I do think the the raid is also outstanding, mm-hmm. um, the animal control raid. You get a lot of sense of each of the characters, the dogs or the animals as characters in that, um, you know, the poodle prostrating herself, essentially. Um, you've got the, the little chimpanzee who loves his radio. I love that little sequence where he drops his radio and the, the woman picks it up oh. and lures him into the cage. She's so malevolent in that, so cold calculating it's, it's hard to terrible. watch uh and then it, it you know it ends with the goldfish uh spitting the goldfish which is a nice little moment in in all of this brutality a nice little moment it's devastating i it's, was it's, it's emotional but it ends with a relief because he spits the fish in and he jumps out the window and gets away from that guy thank god that little monkey was there by the way of, the, of all the animals in this movie the only one that is the, the one that's most similar to babe is the little monkey that steals the suitcase at the beginning Yes, he steals the suitcase, but he also tries to help as much as possible. When Babe is running away from the pit bull, the little monkey goes downstairs to let him in. He's just a little too late. Look, <laughs> like, did you guys notice when Babe is trying to escape from that the the raid and he's he's got the the leash attached to him? He jumps out the window. Did you notice that the little monkey is carrying a gun? Yes, I did notice that. <laughs> like, what happened there? <laughs> and he just throws the gun like at the guy. <laughs> I thought that I thought that monkey was going to start blowing away those animal cops. Honestly. That's what I thought too. I, I thought it was like a stun gun. So I was like, I was like surprised. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised if they had to cut out. Like maybe he actually did use the gun, and they decided to edit it out of the film because there is a gun. You, you got to be like, it's George Miller. If he's going to include a gun in the scene, there's got to be a purpose for it. I'm pretty sure they cut it out. Earlier, you said that the the laugh out the best laugh out loud scene was the scene with the duck hunters. Uh, the so, scene yeah. that I laughed aloud at was actually during this crazy, horrific like raid. At one point, Ferdinand hides underneath the bed, and, and he's and allergic yes. to cats. <laughs> and then you have the dog in the wheelchair. I always forget his name, and he's blind. And he's like, and then uh, Ferdinand has the bucket over his head, so neither one of these can actually see that there's like six or seven cats standing right in back of them, and he can't stop sneezing. He's like, "Are you sure there's no cats around?" <laughs> like, I could not stop laughing. Then you see all these cats in the backgrounds. <laughs> oh my god! But that scene is so 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 good. That whole entire sequence because it is like, I mean, when we 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 we've reviewed plenty of horror films on this like podcast, and that scene creates more suspense and dread than most horror films I've seen in the past like mm-hmm. ten years. And it I, is incredible. And then you again, 
you have the emotional moment like at the end with the goldfish and you're at the edge of your seat like are they actually going to kill the goldfish like i know it's a goldfish but damn like they make you care so much about this goldfish and like you're waiting and last like it lasts like a good five minutes before babe actually saves the goldfish well i don't know if it's that long but it certainly feels extended i i I would say that um two things about that sequence one Patrick sort of pointed this out, but it, it, it really needs to be emphasized. Miller has to keep track of so many goddamn animal characters mm-hmm. in that sequence, and they're all over the place. And you, uh, as Patrick sort of uh, intimated, like you don't necessarily know that much about a lot of them. So you're you're during this sequence, you're both learning about character and you're getting all this action. And it's really, really tough to do, and that's kind of like another thing that Miller is a master at. Um, the other thing is... Um, it lasts three minutes. There you go. Uh, the other thing is the, the the goldfish sequence is great because um, we've just seen all these characters that we actually know and care about get essentially arrested. So the stakes are already so high. Um, and then at, at that point, it's like, well, the goldfish is, sort of seems trivial at first, or it might, because, you know, the goldfish isn't really a character. Um, but I think it's another demonstration of, of, uh, of how this movie is really about empathy, that, like, there's no creature too small to escape... Uh, babe's attention uh simon and, including the newborn babies can we just can we just take a moment to acknowledge the fact that they kidnapped newborn babies like babies that were born like two hours prior to the raid yes yeah they're they dead over them <laughs> i mean uh that's why i suspect there's a deleted scene where a gun-wielding babe like blows away the cops and says that won't do pigs uh or at least it was somewhere in their imagination <laughs> I got to give a special shout out to the quick dream sequence that you mentioned earlier, Simon, oh. where it looks like he's gone to heaven. Yeah. Oh, brutal. He sadistic. I, I don't know, would he have been happier there? Yes, he would have. No question. Yeah, I mean, when he comes back, when he comes back to life, it's so uh, it's almost heartbreaking because he's twitching, you know, and he's laying on the cold pavement oh. the cold wet pavement and the, the you know he, he went from paradise essentially back to this horrible place <laughs> right where he's still paralyzed he still needs this like makeshift wheelchair to get around it's like it's so sad yeah yeah whereas before he's just running around chasing butterflies wearing his sweater Aww. <laughs> in green grass and well he does end up i mean it's a happy ending for flea like he ends up at the farm so you know Okay. In in the nice way, not in the way like your parents said to you when your dog went away. Yes, he actually goes to the farm, and he gets a, he, he becomes a, an adrenaline junkie. Uh, all right, all right. So, if there was one thing you could change about this movie, what would it be? And I know Rick, you said you had one, so let's go with you first. Well, I'm not really the biggest fan of the climax that involves like four people bungee jumping for about. 20 minutes or at least it seems like it went on for so long that was so obviously thunderdome again i kept thinking mrs hoggett was gonna grab a chainsaw when she would jump up to the balcony (laughs) that would have ruled i i just thought it went on too long like and like the thing about this movie is like like i said tonally it's all over the place like there's like i mean there's one scene where i i don't even understand what's going on there's a bunch of like there's like a biker gang but they're right they're like they're riding around on like rollerblades, and there's like this big, huge like <laughs> meetup at in like some kind of like street corner, and it's just like it's such a bizarre scene, you know what I mean? And like, so this movie's like it's all over the place tonally, like it's really dark, it's twisted, adventurous, it's like horror territory. It's like really suspenseful, it's funny, but it's just that it went on so long. 
I I agree about the climax. I think I I think it's 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 a couple of things. It's um it does go on a while. It it has some of the more obvious like late 90s CG in that sequence. Um and uh b- by the way, uh no, no slight to Magdus uh Zabansky who plays uh, Esme and is like I think gives the most fearless comic performance in the entire movie. Um so or at least fearless human comic performance in the entire movie she was leading a hundred million dollar movie yeah i mean that's yeah absolutely wild also um, she has way more dialogue than than James anyone else well in the first yeah. movie uh even babe doesn't have much dialogue so shout out to her but yeah i agree it, it goes on a, a, a while and also at that point the danger level is like no longer what it was like you kind of you, you kind of get the sense that okay like they kind of shoved all the all the most dangerous feeling stuff into that middle hour or whatever. So the, 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 the stakes don't feel as high anymore, but I do like, i like that he staged that sequence in this upper crust environment. Um, it kind of makes the, uh, the, the elements that I talked about earlier, a little bit more obvious because they are in this upper class elite, uh, kind of, uh, shunted off space that they've sort of broken into. They've crashed, they've literally crashed the ball. And I do like that aspect, but I agree with Ricky that it's too long. Yeah, I could definitely see your point on that one. Um, I remember thinking that the, definitely the first time I saw it, I did not like the ending very much. Now I see the ending is kind of like, all right, I've, I've, I've been through the worst that this movie has. Like I've been, I've been tested as much as I possibly can be. I didn't want, I don't want a, uh, uh, a hand wringing climax anymore because I've already been through <laughs> all three sequences that did that to me, and I I'm okay with having a little bit of slapstick at the end. I, yeah. I agree. Maybe I, I can see that it goes on a, a little bit too long. Um, I'm okay with it because a lot of times now I just am looking in the background for things, and this is like a the people in this. I, I don't want to. This is not an insult to them. I don't mean this in any way, but I, I'm pretty sure that George Miller went around and picked the most grotesque kind of versions of this sort of person that he could find uh, because there, there's nothing attractive about what's going on here in this, this gala or benefit or whatever it is. Um, there's, it's just, a, it's a, it's another warped version. And again, I love looking at all the different, the, the costumes in the background. They're so bizarre. They're all over the place. Um, but I get it. I get it. Uh, Simon, what about you? What would you change if you could change one thing? So, Maybe I just misread the scene, but in that scene that Ricky was talking about earlier, that sort of outdoor scene with a lot of human actors where there's like kind of this pile up, um, they have Esme go out onto the street and say, pig, pig, pig. And then for some reason, when she says this, the first people to get mad about it aren't the cops, it's the bikers. It's like, come on, with a, with a simple switch, you could have made that scene a lot funnier. <laughs> Okay, I think I think maybe you did miss it slightly. So what happens is there's a shot where the cops are like hitting on some some girls or whatever that are like fawning over them in bikinis, mm-hmm. and you hear pig, 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 and one of the one of the people shifts aside, and they see Mrs. Hoggett saying pigs, 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 and the cops get pissed, so they start going after her. See, they, I they start maybe, following her. Yeah, and, I don't know. And then she she's still saying pig, and she runs into the uh, the the gangster guy, and you go like, "Who are you calling a pig?" But the, that's why the cops are right behind her, standing there. When, when right, the I I must have missed a trick there. I feel I don't know. I feel like they could have that, that joke could have landed a bit harder, made, made it more obvious, possibly. But uh, you know, just because you know, I, that's that's just my comic sensibility. But um, 
yeah, other than that, I, I think I would co-sign what uh, what Ricky said about the climax. I just I, I don't necessarily need it to turn into like Babe Three, come and see at the end or whatever. But like <laughs> you know, uh, it 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 did seem like a bit of a come down from what came before. I mean, the, the 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 easiest way to explain the disjunct between the climax and the rest of the movie is that the climax actually feels like the climax to a movie like the original Babe. Yes. Um. The 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 last thing I wanted to mention about the sequence that I sort of had some issues with is it does contain i think one of the best jokes in the movie which is there's all this calamity esme gets a big bucket of water dumped on her head another thing that by the way could absolutely fucking kill you in real life it's glue uh, yeah well glue too. oh yeah that's glue that's right yeah. and um and then she's standing there for just for a half second and then her purse gets stolen <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a I really still, good gag it still gets stolen despite all of that uh, I that scene stands in stark contrast to everything else in the movie because it's, there's very little color in it. Um, yeah. But I, I like what he was going for there. You know, that was supposed to be down by the beach. So I'm guessing this is supposed to be a Venice Beach in Los Angeles type situation here. Just hyped up, jacked up on steroids uh, with Mad Max cops sitting on their motorcycles. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I like that scene. Esme deals with humans. You know, in the airport, she deals with humans and... In that scene, she deals with humans. Like, in jail, she deals with humans. And in the end, she deals with humans. There's, like, a mix of humans and animals. Whereas Babe deals with animals. So I, I get that they needed they needed a reason to get her away from the hotel. Because that's what those two scenes are doing, right? Chaos, yeah. re, chaos is uh, revisited, I think is what that chapter is called. Chaos is what lands her in jail, meaning she won't be able to take care of Babe. Chaos is what lands Fugly like, in ruins, which we guess maybe leads to his, his heart attack or however he ends up dying. Uh, which is what causes the animals to go hungry. They have nobody to look after them, and that spurs everything that happens after that. Okay, Patrick, what are you changing? Um, I don't know. Because <laughs> if you're not going to pick something, I have one more thing that I would change. Okay, let's hear small. yours, because I honestly was... I watched this movie twice this week, and I was trying to figure out something I would change, and I couldn't really come up with it. Again, very minor. Like, with the climax, it would make a shorter, not a big, huge change that, that you just do in the editing room. Yeah. But I don't like... I like the idea of having the chapters and the title cards popping up. I don't like the mice. I really? find them annoying. Thank you! I don't like the mice either. They're very cloying. Interesting. I need. I. I. I think the main. They're mainly there as a holdover from the first movie. Look, the well, mice. Yes. Period. There's no reason for the mice to be in the movie at all, and they pop up left and right. They don't serve a purpose, and they are annoying during a title card sequence. Well, they're a Greek chorus of sorts. I think they serve a purpose that they're sort of commenting, they're observing, and commenting on what's happening. Um. Yeah, I can see the cloying aspect to it. If you can't, if you don't like fully buy into it, yeah, I can see how they would be. Sort of, uh, sort of annoying, I suppose. Um, I like them. I think that they're, they they don't show up that often. They're, they they're show basically... up for every single title card sequence. <laughs> yeah, which there's only like five in the movie. <laughs> there's more than five. There's like twelve chapters. And all they do is they read the title card, but it's uh, and they, they sing. The they do sing though. <laughs> they sing at the end. And, of and some... honestly, the, it's on. It's the the chipmunk esque singing also is not very endearing to me. I feel oh, like okay, I'm watching yeah. an Alvin and the Chipmunk movie. Kill the it would mice. Be hard to pull Kill the mice. mice. Kill the mice. <laughs> I like the mice. I like when they when they hear the cat singing and they have this appreciation for music and it's beautiful and they go in there and get freaked out by the cats. That that's that is a cute scene. 
Um, yeah, all right. I, I, I don't know. I like the mice. I, I can't honestly say that there's a single animal in this movie that I would that I would get rid of or cut out that I think is like too ham fisted or something like that. Um, all right, let's move on though. This is gonna be this is gonna be an interesting one. MVP guys, MVP. The orangutan. I'm serious. Begin. All right. Just give it to the orangutan. That's my vote. Simon, is that who you're going with? Yep. You're going with Thelonious? Yep. He's so selfish, man. He needs to get dressed before they can escape. Like, come on. He's, he's got character and dignity. class. He's, and he's he got has dignity. no class. He's selfish. He's he's delusional. He's dignified. He's old. Yes. He, he's set in his ways, but ultimately he does change. He does. He just wants to be who he is, and he needs to get dressed. <laughs> and they wait for him, because Babe understands. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you're giving it to Thelonious. The, no, the orangutan, Mar- by the way, is is an amazing actor. He, he hits his marks probably better than anyone else. Yeah. Several shots, like the shot during the foot chase where he is walking away from the balcony, and then he hears the splash, and he rushes back to the balcony to watch. Great shot. Like well, this... Fast pushing on him too. Well, the, the, I, I'm being serious about choosing the orangutan, by the way, because I think something the movie does does really brilliantly is um, it it manipulates our perception of these animals um, to where like we can't help but anthropomorphize, especially chimps and monkey, like anything in the ape monkey family, sure. because they're you know genetically quite similar to us in a lot of ways, and we just we can't help but look at that orangutan, which pro- which I don't know if that fucking thing even has a thought in its head but just looking at it you can't help but find it a little sad and a little like and like i don't know really feel for it when it uh, when it looks at you know, when it looks at the other characters and interacts with them and like the miller is really good at manipulating our perception of them yes very good i'm going to choose george miller but we've already spoken about what an amazing job he did in the movie so i'm going to quickly shift gears and give a special and give a special mention to Magda Zubansky. Yes. First of all, it's not every day you watch a Hollywood movie and you have a lady like her in the lead, you know, in terms of like how she looks, her age, the fact that she's, I think, British. Um, you know how Hollywood works, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. also she has the tough task of being the, I mean, Babe is the, is the main character of the movie but in terms of like human actors she has the most screen time the most lines and she also has to take over for james cromwell who by the way was nominated for an oscar so that's not an easy task so i just want to give a big special mention to her because it's not anyone that can play this this type of role in this type of movie i feel like she would be great in a terry gilliam movie something like 12 monkeys or brazil um, I'm surprised she hasn't done much in terms of like bigger films. Like she's been in like movies, but nothing huge, right? So yeah, just going to give a shout out it, to her. It is a, I mean, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but it's such a physical comic performance. Uh, and that's, uh, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, but th- th- you know, that doesn't get as much respect as, uh, as the sort of stuff Cromwell tends to do. No, but she is extremely entertaining to watch, even more. She's maybe not heartwarming in this. There's not a, a, a ton of emotion behind her character, but she's very entertaining to watch. Um, and she doesn't need to, by the way, carry any of the emotion like Cromwell had to for the original Babe. Their sure. connection, the connection between him and the pig was actually really important in that movie, in that story. It is not, in this story, important for her to be connected with Babe. But she is nevertheless important to the story. 
Um, yeah, and all the little things that she does, like when she puts on the clown suit and adjusts the pants. Like, uh, or, uh, you know, obviously the end, a lot of physical comedy. But I love when she gets busted in the airport for potentially having drugs. Yes. Everything about her performance during that is so endearing. And I like that she kind of goes through the same journey as Babe, where she doesn't know what to expect from the city. And she is a naive who uh, who has the wool over her eyes. And then by the end, she's fucking like doing slam poetry at a judge until he lets her go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then taking on an entire, you know, uh, ballroom worth of, you know, of, ri- of fuddy duddies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she does a fantastic job. Uh, I would, I would, I have to give it to Miller, of course, as well, just because the whole thing is so well-rounded, but everybody it, it was at the top of their game on this one. So I, I actually think your call of the animal wranglers is a fantastic one. I don't know who those people are, but they are unsung heroes of this because this movie doesn't work without them. The, the animals sell everything so convincingly and it's not like this is George Miller directing animals. This is George Miller telling animal wranglers what he wants them to do. And animal wranglers actually achieving that. Also, shout out to the casting director. Uh, because every single mug in this movie is um, is memorable. For every single bit. I'm looking at the courtroom sequence right now. And not just the judge, but the court reporter too. <laughs> just fantastic faces. Miller's really good at that. I, when you watch the crowd in Fury Road and you look at all the the bizarre people in there this guy likes different looking people that's for sure well it's also just australia (laughs) it could be shout out to australia (laughs) exactly uh mvp australia all right uh howard hawks test three great scenes no bad ones guys i think it passes i can think i mean i think that that sequence of the chase the raid and then the flea lick thing those are three i i think fantastic great scenes and i could name some other ones too but um i don't i i can't think of a bad one in this there's not a single scene we would cut out with there is there i mean rick you weren't so hot you would change the ending scene but you wouldn't cut it out the howard hawks test really focuses on an entire scene like three great scenes and one bad scene and the chapters like the title chapters whatever you call them don't really count as a scene it's just me wanting to change, so yeah. I, I I would have to say yes. It passes the Howard Hawks test. Uh, all right. Does this movie? Speaking of sticking around, this is a strange case for a big budget movie. I feel like this is one of the most underrated big budget movies of all time. A movie that got not great reviews when it first came out, and when you look at it on Metacritic, I still I, I think it's still sitting in the sixties. Most people did not appreciate this movie very much, and yet. It has a fervent, like, passionate group of supporters. I feel like the, the ones that originally went against it were wanting Babe, a second, just a second Babe, and they didn't get that. They got something completely more bizarre and twisted. That always happens with sequels, though. I mean, we, we said the exact same thing when we reviewed Gremlins 2, which is not too far off from the original, but it is in some ways, and people just hate it, and we think it's a great movie. I don't really care what critics thought at the time. I always say this, and we've said, I think we've all said this, like, it's better to review movies a year, two years, five years, like even a month after it gets released, after you view it, because I feel like when people watch movies, they're reacting to what the conversation is at the time, or their expectations, or what they wanted or thought that they would get in the movie and did not get, right? But I wouldn't be surprised if some of those critics that gave the movie a bad review at the time would rewatch it now and completely have a different opinion. 
Because like well, when I, you watch a movie, like you know, Simon, we've done it. We go to a press screening at yeah. nine in the morning. You know, we have to write the review by noon or some stupidness, and like you don't really have time to to really think about the film and there's just so many things that get in your way that uh skew your your opinion and um it's it does it's not that it's, it's not that they're lying or not being truthful i just don't think that's a great way to review a movie well i have to say um the reason part of the reason i asked you patrick about the whole siskel and ebert thing was because i was like i don't know 12 when this movie came out but i and i was watching siskel and ebert on television at like midnight on mondays whenever the fuck it aired in halifax <laughs> and uh I remember being so struck by their passion for this movie, which I had no interest in seeing, but also their passion for a movie that no one else seemed to care about. Like that was, that was everywhere. Anyone could see it, but only these two guys seemed to think it was worth anything. And it was something interesting to notice for the first time. Like, Oh, like sometimes the popular narrative about a movie is just like kind of arbitrary and comes from nowhere. But uh, to get to our final question, which is of course, who is the audience for this movie in, in 2021? Does it have one? Um, it definitely did not have an audience when it came out. Like, no. who was this movie for in 1998? It, it bombed by... Uh, like, I'm, I'm not surprised. I, if I was the studio, I would have hated to get this movie. It was, you know, hard to market. Uh, I think Ron Meyer was the, the head of Universal at the time. He called it one of the worst movies that Universal had ever made. Yeah. Why would it be hard to market if the first movie was a success and it was even nominated for an Oscar? I think it's actually smart to do a sequel. I don't. I'm not sure. No, why it's smart it to do a sequel, but not smart to do this sequel. Okay, but 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 the thing is, like most people go into a movie and they don't know what it's going to be like, and a lot of people don't read critic reviews. So from an from a general mainstream audience point of view, I'm not sure why people didn't flock to the movie theater to watch it. Word Maybe. of mouth. Yeah, word of uh, mouth. I think. And I, mean, I think also, people did listen to critics. A yeah, lot more back in 1998, then. people did listen to critics more. They actually sure. read the newspaper and they read the right. Their, their but newspaper. Roger Ebert was the biggest critic at the time, so that still doesn't make sense. Well, the movie made sixty some odd million dollars. I mean, which is not necessarily back in nineteen ninety eight. That would have been actually fine if the movie hadn't cost almost a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> but I mean, to answer the the question of does it have an audience today, I think the main group of people who are going to want to watch this in twenty twenty one are a tourists. Honestly, people who want who are interested in George Miller's style and his use of effects. Um, I'd say, that, yeah, there's two groups, one auteurists and two uh, smart ass hipster parents that want to scare their children. <laughs> hey, I would totally show this. I, I want to show this to my nieces, but my my uh, absolutely sister, my sister in law is fighting me on that one right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's going to happen. though. <laughs> hey, Patrick's sister in law, smarten up. Show them. Wait, wait, too. she doesn't want you to show the movie to the kids. She thinks they're a little too young for it. How right old now. are they? Uh, the youngest one is four. So oh, my God. that is kind of young, young, dude. I mean, he would be terrified by this. I kind of get that, but, but at some That's point, young. I'm going to make those kids cry by watching this movie. Um, yeah. Well, I one of my big things is I know there's a like if you show somebody this movie, a good movie is a good movie, right? And people will recognize that usually except for a San Francisco Chronicle movie critic, apparently, who thought that everything was played for laughs. Um, like, if you show people Babe Pig in the City right now, I, I think that people can appreciate Babe Pig in the City. If they walk in with no preconceived notions, or even if they have a few preconceived notions, it's fine. A good movie is going to, to shine through, and I think this movie does. Uh, just like we talked about with Waterworld, which I'm not comparing this to Waterworld. Waterworld's a, a mediocre movie, but, but it was re ill-received at the time because of other reasons, right? And so uh, what I want to know is, like, uh, 
does this movie have a chance at ever finding an audience? Because I think it got lost in time. And a lot of people have never even heard of this thing. And this was a hundred million dollar. I mean, it was a ninety million dollar movie, but that's like that was a big budget movie at the time, and it just flew under the radar. How does that happen? I think it needs a new physical release. Is what it needs. But a physical release these days and streaming, no, 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 no. Like, look, you put this thing on Netflix. I watch it on Crave, so I'm not sure where you watch it, Patrick, in the U.S. But if you if this thing was on like Disney or Netflix and it popped up at the top of the queue, or they just put it in the spotlight, like you know, family movies for like Easter weekend or some weirdness. Like everybody would watch it. The point of the point of this question and the last thing I'm going to say is sometimes we review movies from like the 60s or 70s or 80s. In this case, 1998, I believe. And so it's like sometimes things are just dated. It could be like bad uh, humor that's done in bad taste and or the effects just don't stand up and or the action or whatever it is. Right. This movie stands the test of time. It stands the test of time because it's a great script. It's well directed. It's got a great cast. And the effects are amazing for its time. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, we just spent an hour, like 15 minutes raving about the movie. So not, I'm not going to repeat everything we just said, but it stands the test of time. Well, hopefully this movie does find an audience because as deserving as the original Babe is, most people have heard of that movie and a lot of people have even seen it. I, I feel like this movie goes so far beyond that one as for what it's reaching for and what it actually accomplishes. Uh, that it it uh, it needs a it needs a better chance than it had when it was basically destroyed by a bad release and you know poor poor reviews uh, when it first came out. It's it's again it's because people just expect a sequel to be a cash grab in and therefore it's going to be bad. And that's yeah. Not George the Miller case. did not make a cash grab with this. That is not at all what happened. I mean, to my mind, it is not in any way shocking or surprising that a movie this uh, this scary and dark didn't do well with children, its primary audience. No, I'm not surprised either. What I am surprised by, though, is the the reception that it originally received from people who should know better. That I'm not. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, that's why I don't trust critics opinions, because I'm sorry, like all of these critics, they're all just. They, they like how many times have I seen a critic go on Twitter and complain a bitch about whatever movie they that they're going to go see based on the trailers or the posters or who's cast or who the director is. And they don't like the director because of what he did or said in real life. And they go into the movie and surprise, it's a negative review. Like you've already decided before watching a movie that you're going to give it a negative review. Yeah, there's a there's obviously a big problem in the industry with that. But that's for a whole other podcast. <laughs> it is. Uh, we should definitely wrap this one up, though. Uh, Simon, I'm assuming you are still not on the internet, as I am not either. Hey. But Rick... Go outside, people. Take a walk. Yeah, exactly. It's summertime. Rick, where can we find you and the show? Well, first of all, Patrick, thank you so much for choosing a movie I haven't yet watched. I wouldn't call it a masterpiece, but it's a near masterpiece. Very, okay. very good movie. So glad I watched it. Uh, you can find the podcast over at SortedCinema.com, and you can find basically archive every single podcast episode we've ever done with all the links to where you can listen to the podcast, including iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, you name it. So once again, SortedCinema.com. Twitter handle is Sorted Cinema. Anything Sorted Cinema on the internet belongs to us. Perfect. All right. Well, that'll wrap this week's up, and we shall be back. Do we know what we're doing next week, guys? Whose pick is it? It's Rick. Okay. All right. We'll be back next week with Rick's pick. Until then. Listen up! Well, uh, I... If I had words... I'd sing a day for 
you. La, I'd la, stay la, 